good morning and welcome to the second episode of Dura, the podcast about what keeps neurosurgeons up at night. Last time we had the pleasure of starting our day with Philippe Schucht and hear about his work in Switzerland and Myanmar. Today we'll listen to the story of Faith Robertson, a talented neurosurgical resident with interest in health systems and innovation, currently working in Boston. Hey, good morning, Marike. Thanks for having me on the show. As always, I started my interview with the question, how did you sleep last night? I slept pretty well last night overall. You know, I was up late uh, watching a Colombian soccer game with my boyfriend, but we tied, so it's all good. Because of the ongoing COVID situation, I interviewed Faith via an internet connection last October, and my own recording did not turn out that well. So I'll help tell Faith her story as a voiceover, instead of as an interviewer. We started our interview with the things that concern Faith. In other words, the things that keep her up at night. As we all know, we're in the midst of a, a global pandemic. And um, while things were really improving um, in Boston and especially in Mass General for a while, we're starting to see a rise in cases again. So that is a, a little bit of a concern. This rise in COVID cases significantly affected Faith, her work. So I was a first year when this started um, back in February, March is when it was the first wave really hit Boston. And uh, I was working in neurosurgery at that time. And we definitely had to reduce our cases. But then shortly after that, I um, had rotated on to general surgery and then was redeployed. So I had to work as a a medicine doctor in a COVID triage unit. Ironically, Faith's own research ties in neatly with the situation she is in now. A lot of my research in the past has been in global neurosurgery and working with low and middle income countries and trying to better understand how we can improve uh, timely access to safe and affordable health care for you know, low and middle income countries, areas that are low resource. And um, so I've been working on studying task shifting and sharing as a workforce strategy uh, to increase the amount of workers for the um, to improve the si- supply demand ratio for patients that need care. Hold up. Task sharing and shifting. Those are terms I'm afraid not everyone will be familiar with. So task shifting is when you train a uh, lesser trained group. Um, so for example, in neurosurgery, if you were to have a neurosurgeon and then train anyone from a non-doctor to a general practitioner, a general surgery trainee, or a general surgeon, how to do, um, basic life-saving neurosurgical procedures, such as a, um, a burr hole, a craniectomy. Typically this is for trauma, but you would train them how to do those skill set, that skill set. And then task shifting says that you you would train them and then essentially set them free to be able to do that on their own. Um, Obviously, this raises many concerns because you can train someone on a task, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they've had that background and they have that clinical understanding of of how to manage patients, how to manage complications. So uh, a new movement has evolved out of the task shifting and what that's called task sharing. It's similar in that you can train someone of, of fewer sk- skills and lesser training 
to do a particular job, but you maintain connection with them as part of a team and it's shared clinical autonomy over the patient. So in this example, it'd be a neurosurgeon communicating with maybe a general surgery trainee, talking about the case, talking about the plan. They've gone back and forth and had renewed training periods. And then if complications arise, there's that that person that you can talk to to, to share that decision-making, share that responsibility of care. The difference between Faith's research and her current reality is that she was not researching in a low-resource, low-income country, but experiencing everything herself, giving her a new way to look at and to use her own research. When it happened to me and I was told I was going to be going to work in the emergency room or on a COVID floor, um, something out of my comfort zone, out of my skill set, uh, there is a sense of, of nervousness and uncertainty. And also with COVID, an, an added element of fear, because at the time we we knew very little about how to contract, how one contracts the virus and you know what the risks were, especially what are the risks for older versus younger individuals. Um, so when I started seeing this through the lens of, okay, this is, this is actually like a task shifting, sharing model, it gave me a little more ease to think of how to do this systematically, how to make sure, you know, what questions could I ask if I had a problem, did I know who my referral person was? If, um, you know, who were, who were the people on my team were, who were those sharing responsibility with me? And it prompted me to be able to ask those questions in my own environment, but then um, also think about how we could do this on a broader scale and um, systematically during the COVID pandemic. The reality with COVID is that my own students in the Netherlands could also be retrained to help in the emergency room or intensive care unit. And I took this opportunity to ask Faith about what a hospital can do to make sure their students are ready to take on a different task. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to think about task sharing in a, a three-phase model. And and that's um, you know, training, practice, and maintenance. So, so during this time where you're anticipating um, a higher demand than supply of workers, or that you are in, in the midst of that, um, you, the important thing is to have robust training so that everyone feels comfortable with the skills they need to, to fulfill that question is what is the job to be done? Is it, is the job to be done? They need a proning team. Someone to, you know, put patients onto their stomach to breathe better. And do they need a procedure team to put in lines? Do they just need someone to be admitting patients through the emergency room and triaging them and whatever that is to um, then delegate your training groups into that. So you have, you know, focused training and it's best if there's some type of competency-based evaluation or just ensuring that those who are going to be shifted to new roles are, um, they feel comfortable with the knowledge, they feel comfortable with the understanding and that they know who they're, who their teams are, who is, what's the chain of command in which they report and ask questions, et cetera. And that actually ends up alleviating a lot of that, that fear and anxiety and improved safety of care. Um, other things hospitals can then do is, you know, once people are working in that practice phase are ensuring that, you know, there are the right supports, there are check-ins about, you know, 
what are what's going well, what's not. Um, is everyone have PPE? Is everyone um, you know starting to study? Is there are there any problems? Are the patients safe, etc. And making sure there's not you know burnout or illness, and that there's a, a steady flow of people that are are trained to be there, as you need to rotate people out. And then the the maintenance phases kind of depends on on how long this lasts. I mean, there's are they going to be redeployed for a month, and do they have the support system they need during that? Do they need um, you know physical health checks, uh, testing? How frequently should they be testing? How do they need mental health checks? And there's some pretty tough things during this time when you have to have people very sick not be able to be seen by their families. And then, you know, originally when this started, I think many of us were hopeful that it would be over in a couple of months, but we're already now into October and seeing more waves. So this maintenance phase might mean keeping trained teams available for task sharing into the next year or so. And what does that look like? So, so breaking it down into this model of training practice and maintenance, I think is helpful for, for hospitals as well. Another one of Faith's concerns besides performing the task at hand was what this redirection of tasks would do to her residency. I thought about that originally more than now. Um, with, with neurosurgery, you know, there's still Overall, the patient populations that we treat, many of them are high acuity. So during the COVID pandemic, we're still seeing, you know, trauma cases. We're still treating vascular patients. There's still emergency spine and, you know, high grade progressive tumors. So we're still very busy, even when things were the slowest it had been. Um, And then when things settled down in the summer, um, we became very busy with the backlog. So in terms of um, what I, as you're alluding to, some thought of, oh, am I not going to get these cases or am I not going to get the hands-on experience because I'll be uh, redeployed elsewhere? I think it's it's balanced out. It's less of a concern now. I know it's it's more of a concern for people in a finite timeline, such as a one-year fellowship or in their chief year. and. Um, you know, the ACGME for America has looked at at that and, and the, you know, board certification bodies are, are looking into that and whether or not you might be able to, you know, complete your training with fewer cases. So I think, you know, overall, we'll do what we need to do. Um, but there's been a lot of, of surprising benefits that have come out of this as well, um, such as the, all the online education. But the hospitals who have the hardest time, Faith believes, are those hospitals in low-income countries she originally researched. Overall, I think that you know areas and hospitals that are probably lower resource that don't have as big of reserves in terms of their you know ventilator capacity, PPE, um, those resources are going to be shifted for the COVID patients and there'll be less of a reserve to continue the neurosurgical care in the background, especially the uh, elective or less urgent cases, uh, just because of of resource limitation and even staff limitation. So they may have a harder time bouncing back or meeting the demands of all the backlog of cases. And already they have, you know, 
fewer reserves of residents sometimes, etc. So for for smaller hospitals and for for countries where they have smaller neurosurgical programs or lower resource hospitals, I think it'll be it has the potential to be a greater challenge of that training. And it's possible they may need to extend the length of their training. Faith does see ways to help those hospitals so they do not stand alone in their challenges. I think that um, having an uh, open conversation, being able to um, hear from from these cities, these hospitals, these countries, uh, you know, how are they doing? What are their case volumes now? What are what do they need? Um, and trying to be some supportive as a neurosurgical community, um, in addition to you know relying just on our our healthcare system and our our country to be reaching out. Um, so if you have a colleague who's who's in the Philippines, if you have a colleague who's in Cameroon, um, talking with them and and seeing how things are going, is it they need more um, PPE and then you know, brainstorming with them how to get that? Is it they need actually more training or, or they need webinars? You know, what do, what do they need? And just keeping an ear out for that. She has some closing advice for neurosurgeons and trainees performing and training in times of COVID. And I think some of it also applies to general situations in the hospital, wherever or whenever you're working. We all know this is a, a very different time and it's it's not one we would have you know welcomed with open arms and it, it definitely changes how we practice medicine um but i would i would really try to like focus and center yourself each day and, and think about how you can best play a role in that you know as a as a neurosurgical consult resident you're still seeing all the emergencies uh, you're still seeing all the new patients in the hospital but the added challenge with COVID and with visitor restrictions is that they don't have their family with them. You know, you are, you now have to be an even better communicator um, over the phone and, and be relaying this information and, and be accurate in what you're saying and, and be you know, careful as you're donning and doffing your PPE to not be spreading this. So you have, you have more responsibilities now. Um, and while you might feel that your your hands are tied by you know, not having control as what you know the surge of the virus is dictating which cases go or not, you actually um, have control over some things. And if you focus on how do I do the best job possible with the things I do have control over, I think that's how you can make an impact every day. So you can still you know. Join the webinars that are now widely available on all this great new neurosurgical information. Keep studying your anatomy. Go to cases when you can. Um, and then just be, you know, if you're redeployed and you're you're ordering Lasix for congestive heart failure or you're proning patients for COVID, you still have the opportunity to be the, the best person in that role at that time. So um, that's my my two cents of advice thank you faith for an amazing interview and thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about challenging cases in neurosurgery global neurosurgery or would like to connect with neurosurgeons 
please visit us at www.ens.org. And I hope to reconnect with you in two to four weeks. Take care of each other and have a good day.